This is Macro Horizons, Episode 90, House of Bonds, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 13th. With mid-October at hand, the presidential election quickly approaching, monetary policy stable, and the polls indicating a decisive victory for the Democrats, it appears 2016 is shaping up as expected. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed was an important one in the Treasury market and was relevant for several reasons, not least of which being we did see a series of auctions that we had the 3, the 10, and the 30-year all went reasonably well, all things considered, although there was a backup in rates to price in a solid concession for the takedown. More importantly, at least from our perspective, was the typical dynamic of buying the auction for a degree of outperformance into the of the week hasn't materialized to the same extent as it had previously. Now, this is consistent with our broader take that if anything, between now and the end of the year, there will be upward pressure on rates as the realities of the amount of stimulus that's in the system combined with inflationary pressures and the seasonal tendency for the market to price in optimism for the year ahead. Now, the presidential elections clearly offer the most significant hurdle between now and any degree of economic optimism. That being said, some of the political progression that we have seen suggests that the consensus is continuing to form around the notion that the Democrats have a reasonable probability of a sweep in early November. As we approach the elections themselves, we're reminded of the experience in 2016 and to a large extent anticipate a collective reluctance on the part of investors to put too much confidence in the polls. As a result, it follows intuitively that most in the market are expecting the first week of November to be particularly volatile, if nothing else. Whether that Volatility ultimately resolves in a risk-on move and upward pressure on rates remains to be seen and, frankly, is contingent on how clear the results are. More immediately, we have 10-year yields having broken out of the prior range and up against that 80 basis point level that we have been focused on as potential support. Now, for context, as we contemplate the end of the year, the departure point for the outright level of yields does matter. So if we find ourselves in a situation post-election, results are in, upward pressure on domestic equities, if tens are comparable to where we are now, call it 75, 80 basis points, then that year-end objective of seeing 10-year yields trade with a one handle becomes far more realistic. 
in the event that there is a meaningful risk-off impulse between now and the elections, or as a result of the elections, then the broader range theme once again comes back into play. All else being equal, we are leaning a bit more bearishly, more bearishly than we would typically in the treasury market uh, at this stage, with the biggest potential headwind coming in the form of the election outcome. So guys, at long last, a bearish week in the treasury market. We saw 10-year yields move higher and marginally redefine the top of their trading range. So now the question really becomes, how sustainable is this? You know, Ben, I think that's a question that is on most investors' mind in the treasury market, at least. A lot of the backup was coincident with the incoming auctions. A reasonable concession was priced in. Takedowns were okay, not great across the board, but reasonable, all things considered. But we didn't see that classic post-auction takedown bid that would bring rates back into the prior range. So it's the absence of that bid that has at least me somewhat encouraged that we're in the process of pricing to a new, albeit only slightly higher rate plateau. Whether or not this is sustainable, I think will be a function of the underlying drivers. So if it was just supply and there's a lag, Next week, we could find ourselves in a situation where rates drift a bit lower. If, on the other hand, it's a combination of the continued outperformance of risk assets, as the S&P 500 is now solidly above 3450, that's clearly been an influence. But at the same time, we also have some progression on the fiscal front, the on-again, off-again fiscal bailout 2.0 debate continues. And the progression toward the elections, I think, is meaningful. Most recent polls continue to indicate that Biden has a widening lead over Trump, although we are reminded of the experience of 2016. And if anything, we expect that the investment community is going to be looking cautiously at the polls and what they indicate at this point. Yeah. And on the election front, something that I found at least a little bit counterintuitive is the fact that we're seeing this growing lead for the Democrats, at least as indicated by the polls and some other measures of election probabilities. But yet risk assets have not performed as one would otherwise expect them to. If, in fact, a Biden administration is coming into the White House, sticking with the traditional Democratic Party lines, that would be less pro-business, traditionally higher taxes and higher deficits. But given the fact that his lead is extending and yet stocks continue to rally, presumably reflecting at least a probability of that coming to pass, to me what this hints at is the relevance of uncertainty around the election, or I guess rather more certainty around the election, as really the latest moves point to an investor base that wants to receive the results of the election quickly and a wider margin of victory for either party would provide that, and then move on to trading the recovery which again just circles back to something that I think we've been saying for quite some time, which is that the path of the pandemic and the economic fallout of it still remains the most relevant theme across financial markets, whether that be treasuries, corporates, or stocks. And Ben, I think you hit something that's exactly right, that Biden's tax plan is growth negative. It's bad for valuations. That's relatively intuitive in that by itself, higher taxes are bad for companies, bad for growth, bad for valuations, at least as a partial equilibrium. The important nuance to me is that a Biden victory and the Senate turning over to the Democrats 
opens the door for less gridlock for at least the next two years, meaning that we could get an even larger fiscal stimulus. You know, if you look at some of the things that Pelosi is proposing, we're talking an order of magnitude of two, three trillion dollars in the next fiscal stimulus. That's another 10, potentially 15 percent or so of GDP. Those are very big numbers for another fiscal round. So While there would be growth negative implications for the tax plan, growth negative implications for some of the continued trade rhetoric against China, those need to be offset by the growth positive implications of much more aggressive fiscal stimulus. And then the bigger question arises, is it enough? Is $2 trillion in stimulus or $3 trillion in stimulus going to be enough to actually provide a cushion for the real economy and for the employment market to make it through what is presumed to be another round of lockdowns associated with headwinds on the labor front. And we've seen a great deal done already by the Fed, and the Fed has made it abundantly clear that they're now looking to Congress to deliver on the fiscal side. But if we take a step back, no one at the Fed is in a position to develop a vaccine. All that monetary policy can do is provide enough liquidity so firms can bridge the gap between the beginning of 2020 and whatever the new normal looks like, which is presumably going to be in 2021. And even the efforts by Congress and the White House on the fiscal side are by definition temporary and will, as we saw with the first round, at some point run out. And Ian, I think that's exactly right. And that's why the absence of gridlock could be so valuable. The reality is we don't know for certain how the next couple of years are going to play out. By having less gridlock in Congress, that allows for more flexibility, potentially more policy intervention if needed, more spending, more targeted spending in order to address whatever may come in the next several quarters. On the other hand, if we're looking at a split Congress once again, this becomes much more difficult to be as flexible and as responsive to needs that will arise in the next several years. So I think your point about will this be enough is exactly spot on. The nuance is that if we have one party in control, frankly, either party, it's much easier to pass follow-on legislation if the next round is not enough. Whereas if you have gridlock, you're running back into that issue of renegotiating the next fiscal package for months and months as defaults increase, permanent job losses grow, and the number of people in long-term unemployment start to accelerate. And let us not forget, we're still in an environment where roughly 25% of the working population is at home. While still employed, the realities of a work-from-home paradigm do have implications for how the frontline service sector is going to evolve over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Now, we've made the observation before that the shift away from the urban centers to the suburbs or even further out hasn't occurred simultaneously with a shift in support industries, which then creates a risk of taxing the baseline infrastructure of the suburbs, which for so long sidelined in favor of the more populated urban centers. So there is a broader reshuffling yet to take place. However, my baseline assumption would be that to actually see people make the decisions to relocate their businesses, 
on the service side or to follow those businesses out from the employment side, we would need to see an even longer time horizon to getting back to normal. So if the progress toward a vaccine transpires as expected, that would put the emphasis on the latter part of 2021 to returning to some version of normal. And I would worry that that actually keeps businesses from retooling and relocating and extends this period of uncertainty where everyone is just on hold. And outside of the employment landscape specifically, another area where these shifts have been apparent is in the consumption and inflation paradigm. And that makes this week's CPI and retail sales updates particularly important. Two areas in particular I think that are worth flagging within CPI are real estate and used auto prices, both of which have been sort of the classic beneficiaries of the move from urban centers elsewhere, as people need to buy homes and need to buy cars where public transit is less of an option. However, over the next several months, I think there's a two-pronged risk to these further gains, the first of which simply being base effects and that these pickups can't continue at the pace they have, and the second simply being that we're probably approaching a point where those individuals that have made the decision to make those moves have done so. And so what remains are people who are quote unquote going to stick it out until the new normal gets more fully underway. And I guess this is sort of a version of the wait and see approach that you mentioned, Ian, but particularly ahead of this week's data, I think it's worth mentioning. Something that we haven't focused on in a while, and part of it has to do with simply the progression of the calendar, is year-end and some of the funding stresses that we might potentially see around that and what the market is expecting. So when I think about the year-end turn and some of the stresses in the funding market comparable to what we saw in September of 2019, I'm sure that I'm not alone in the assumption that while all else being equal, there might be some strain, the Fed's willingness and commitment to providing the needed amount of liquidity almost goes without saying at this point. Yeah, Ian, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, there are a variety of ways to think about potential pressure over year end. But at the end of the day, the Fed's extremely aggressive QE programs and emergency liquidity facilities are providing more than ample space to reduce outsized volatility on year end. Just as one example, if you look at the amount of excess reserves in the system, they're nearly double where they were at this point last year. And we have three more months of quantitative easing at $120 billion per month to go before we get there. And this is in addition to regulatory relief and the promise of these liquidity facilities. So while we might see some noise around year end, I would expect that to be very limited pockets. And we're not going to be returning to that 2017, 2018, 2019 type of stress or volatility for quite some time, especially just given the fact that rates are going to be at zero and the Fed's going to be printing money in order to execute QE for years, not months. And shifting attention back a little bit further out the curve, something that was talked about a lot during this past week was positioning in the market and how that might dictate the price action over the next several weeks, maybe even the next several months. And what we're seeing is an interesting breakdown in the speculative positioning in the 10-year contract, the classic bond contract, and the ultra-long. And the 10-year sector positioning is effectively flat. But as you move further out, especially in the classic bond contract, the short base we're seeing there has extended meaningfully. And what that introduced 
introduces is the risk that in the event we see a sharp move and those positions are forced closed, that could certainly add a tailwind to any flight to quality flattening impulse. And while not necessarily a base case this week or maybe even next week, it is something to consider in the broader context of how the market is positioned and how investors are set up going into the 20-year auction, which is on October 21st. So Ben, you mentioned that the short base is accelerating in the classic bond, but just kind of holding steady in the ultra. What do you make of that divergence? Some of that has to do simply with the introduction of the 20-year. It's now been almost six months since the introduction of the new bond, and the fact that there's now a cash liquidity point on the curve that aligns more closely as a deliverable in the classic bond contract goes at least some of the way in helping explain why we've seen this short base push as far as it has. So Ben, essentially what you're saying is that the 20s are more difficult than you thought? They're not over yet. Just wait until your 30s. Or your 40s. In the week ahead, the holiday-shortened week contains a couple data points of relevance, first being core CPI. As it presently stands, the consensus is for a two-tenths of a percent increase in the core inflation measure. Now, inflation, generally speaking, has been rebounding more quickly than one might have otherwise anticipated at the beginning of the pandemic when it seemed that deflationary risks were far more relevant. The continued upward pressure on consumer prices, while to a large extent it's occurred in specific pockets, used auto prices being a key example, nonetheless surely gives solace to the Fed, particularly at this stage in the cycle. We'll also have the benefit of retail sales on Friday to help further shape expectations for the performance of the real economy during the third quarter. It's September's data and will assist in level setting for consumption in the fourth quarter. It goes without saying that 2020 has changed a lot of the traditional correlations and consumption patterns. However, in an attempt to return to some version of normality, we'll be watching the pace of holiday sales. The timing of the holidays with the expiration of some of the enhanced unemployment benefits is unfortunate from a consumption perspective, which suggests that attention will still be on the employment landscape. Progress in Washington toward a fiscal bailout 2.0 continues and will also be a key market focus, whether it ends up being a $2.2 trillion deal or something more significant will undoubtedly drive performance of risk assets, most notably the domestic equity market. With the Fed effectively on hold until year-end or mid-December, depending on how the next several weeks play out, the biggest risk to financial conditions comes in the shape of the performance of equities and any eventuality in which we see a spike in equity volatility, thereby tightening financial conditions and prompting the Fed into action. Now, this is a well-worn feedback loop, but nonetheless remains apropos, and as we contemplate what the Fed may or may not do in terms of adjusting the weighted average maturity of QE purchases or signaling additional QE efforts in other sectors, the equity market simply cannot be ignored. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And while tradition would suggest a desire to be a fly on the wall in the White House, as with so many things, perhaps 2020 warrants a new idiom of note. 
is vice presidential insect an elected or appointed post? Either way, it is very swat after. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.